Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to PX44 Today. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Today we're joined by another Peter, Peter Mayers. Peter is a senior moderator with the Cranlana program, an independent and not-for-profit organisation that promotes ethical leadership and a contributing editor to Inside Story magazine. From 1987 to 2011, Peter worked as a journalist and broadcaster with the ABC. During those 25 years, he presented national radio programs and served as a foreign correspondent. He subsequently worked on urban policy as Cities Fellow at the Grattan Institute. Today, we're going to be focusing on Peter's new book, No Place Like Home. Start again. Today, we're going to be focusing on Peter's new book, No Place Like Home: Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis which is published by text. Peter was also a guest of the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association, or VPLA, 2018 conference in Lawn, which, which is where we first heard of, of his new book. VPLA is a great supporter of the podcast, so we thought recording some of this content would be useful for anyone who didn't attend the conference. You can find details for VPLA on our website at www.planningexchange.org. Welcome to the show, Peter. Now, this is going to be very confusing having two Pete's on the show. Well, you can call me Peter and call him Pete, and that'll allow <laughs> people to distinguish them. Thanks very much, Jess. Uh, Peter, just briefly, Jess has given a bit of a background for your um, your CV. Anything else you'd like to add to that? No, I guess um, you know I, I've been writing uh, for a long time. I mean, I began as a as a uh, my life as a broadcaster. I've got a face for radio rather than television. Um, and over time, I began writing for print as well, uh, particularly encouraged long ago in a magazine called Australian Society. And the editor of Australian Society is now the editor of Inside Story, where I write regularly. And uh, uh, I would suggest anyone who's interested in policy broadly, Inside Story, it's free, is a great place to go. We'll put a link on our website. And how did you, after leaving the ABC, how did you become an author? Well, I wrote a book um, about, well, the, in 2001, about uh, Australia's policies towards refugees and asylum seekers. And I used my long service leave at the ABC to do that. And the, that book actually came out before the tamper. Uh, and then the Tampa crisis hit, which was good for sales, bad for people on board the Tampa, but that's another story. And I was uh, encouraged to write a new edition, which I did. Uh, and, and I guess I got a taste for writing books from that, and I'd always wanted to go back to it. But the problem is t I didn't have any more long service leave. So uh, um, really my wife encouraged me. She said, look, when you're working at the Grattan Institute, you're not going to get anything written. You need to you know, go part-time, you need to create space in your life. Uh, and that's what I did. Um, and that gave me the, you know, now I, I obviously I'm still quite, work quite actively, but that gives me the space in between working. Um, I'm not full-time, gives me the space to pursue my writing interests because I want to write about things that 
no one's necessarily going to not not necessarily going to get paid for, but I think are important public policy issues, social issues. Definitely. Now, um, all all royalties from your book are donated to the Front Yard Youth Services. What's your connection with that? So Front Yard, for people who don't know it, is a Melbourne-based, Melbourne CBD-based entry point for young people uh, in need. So people aged 14 to 25 uh, who, and in many cases, they're in need because they're homeless. Uh, They might be fleeing family violence. They might have been kicked out of home because they've got uh, mental health problems or addiction problems or whatever it might be. So uh, at any one time, I think in Victoria, there's around 6,000 young people who are are homeless. Uh, They may be couch surfing. They may be sleeping in their car. They may be sleeping rough. And Front Yard is a place that provides... Uh, a referral, well, people can come in, they can get free food, they can have a shower, they can, you know, wash their clothes, all those sorts of practical things, but in the process they get introduced to various services and counselling and uh, so Front Yard is the primary youth homelessness service in Melbourne, uh, provides legal services, health services, lots of other stuff as well. And, and as part of my research for No Place Like Home, I spent a week observing their work and, and it was a you know, profound experience, a moving experience. And I thought, well, you know, if I can do give something back, then through the royalties, that's something I can do. Uh, Peter, your book starts out reflecting on Bernard Salt's avocado comments, the smashed avocado comments of 2016. Is the affordability issue that we're talking about more than just eating breakfast at home? And maybe you could just briefly talk about what Bernard did say. Yeah, so Bernard uh, wrote a piece in, in, in his, one of his regular columns in the Weekend Australian magazine, which was pretty tongue-in-cheek, actually, um, saying that there was a conspiracy against baby boomers um, because, you know, if you go to a trendy cafe, you're expected to sit on a milk crate and baby boomers... Uh, hamstrings don't stretch that far in the print. <laughs> Unless you're yeah. a cyclist. That's right. And, the, and the, the music's too loud so you can't have a conversation and the print on the menu's too small. And then he complained <laughs> about seeing all these young people in these trendy cafes eating smashed avocado with organic feta on toast at $22 a pop. And he said, well, you know, I can afford to do that because I've paid for my home and I've brought up my kids, but what are they doing? Why aren't they saving for their deposit? And it was a joke. But it was what's really interesting is reading the readers' comments because all these people took it very seriously. Both people of his generation, baby boomer generation, who said, that's right, you know, when I was a lad, we lived in a shoebox in the middle of the road and, you know, we saved every penny and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then you had young people saying, you know, F you, Bernard Saltz, you know, that's not, the, the you know, the problem. Uh, so, uh, you know, it is, of course, I don't, I'm not... The, the avocado kind of trope took off. Bernard was just having a joke. But uh, it, it, it sort of crystallised something, which is the idea those who already have housing and who generally are older feel like they deserve everything they have because they worked hard and saved hard and maybe renovated themselves and all the rest of it. And those who don't have housing say, it's now impossible. How am I supposed to get a deposit together? Um, and, and we can see the relationship between average earnings and the price of a house is way out of kilter. When I was buying my first house, it was probably something like three to one. So the relationship between a household income, average household income and, and the price of a house, three to one. Now it's in Melbourne, eight to one, in Sydney, 12 to one, whatever the figures are at the moment. It's way out of kilter. 
And even though interest rates are much lower, so your mortgage repayments are more affordable, there's the huge barrier of getting together a deposit in the first place. And young people now have to pay back their, their hex debt once they start earning, and their jobs are much more insecure than they used to be, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole... So uh, generational inequality? It's, it's a whole generational change. Generational theft, yeah. Um, but, but, but the other thing is that we, we still focus on this, and this has happened when I've been doing interviews about, about the book um, since it came out a couple of months ago, the focus always goes on home ownership. And I have to say, hang on a second, what's at issue here is not home ownership. What is the issue is secure, affordable housing for all. And we have to remember that a third of people rent and increasing numbers of people rent all their life, increasing numbers of people rent with children, increasing numbers of people rent post-retirement. And that is the reality we have to come to grips with, as well as the question of you know, people being able to buy their own home, should that be the choice they want to make. What a smashed avocado. <laughs> you can guess, guess those cafes where our listeners. Um, One of the key messages of your book, Peter, is the importance around greyfield development over further greenfield encroachment. How do we encourage more of that sort of middle ring development in the greyfield suburbs, yeah. uh, given that there's that political resistance in those? Yeah, the whole greyfields, greenfields um, issue and brownfields of course there's grey green and brown and just quickly to outline brownfields would be former industrial sites like the redevelopment around docklands in melbourne uh, grey uh, greenfields is the one we're probably most familiar with that's the expansion of out new new suburbs so new land releases farmland converted to housing and greyfields is the redevelopment of existing housing and in particular we're talking generally here about middle ring suburbs they might be post-war suburbs so not necessarily heritage listed uh, and housing that was built in a different era. So the post-war era was one of baby boom um, and, you know, growing families. And so you built housing of a certain type, which was two and three bedroom family homes, often on a, on a reasonably sized block, 400, 500, 600 square metre block. And uh, the, the, that housing now, 70 years old often, or 60, 70 years old, is maybe ending... Creaky. It's useful life, mm. maybe not well designed um, for energy efficiency in a changing climate, uh, and is also not necessarily the housing we need as we have now the growth of single-person households becoming the most common household type uh, of, of single-couple households. As we live longer, more people live um, you know, without children, et cetera, et cetera. We no longer so often live in multifamily households or, or intergenerational households. So, the, the, so there's the traditional, you know, the, the, there's the established pattern of housing development in Australia, which is the Greenfields model, and we do that very efficiently in terms of cost. Um, you know, very, the, the housing itself, and I mean, real estate prices are high, but the cost of building a house in Australia, it seems to be quite competitive. And we roll that model out but it's increasingly distant from certainly the major, uh, most well-paid jobs, which tend to be clustered around the inner city. Uh, it's involves, it's very expensive in terms of infrastructure delivery, roads, um, sewage, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's not energy efficient housing. 
and it tends to be lacking in diversity. It tends to be monocultural in terms of... So there are real problems with the, the greenfield model, and, and we can come on to talk about the problems with... or the problems of... Uh, of central city development and, and uh, greyfields as well. I remember uh, Don Dunstan did a TV program, Jess, I'm going back a long way, <laughs> but he did. He called it Tyrannodom. He and he went around the outer suburbs and he just said, you know, oh, you know, this is like a bleak existence. But that was maybe a bit of snobbery. But there, there is a touch of snobbery, I think, involved in mm-hmm. in, in that. In, in my book, I went I went to Mandurah and the outer uh, southern, very southern parts of Perth, which is a, a greenfield growth area. And uh, one of the interesting things in Mandurah is that you, the, the local um, building requirements are to have a higher height on your garage um, than in other jurisdictions because you've got to be able to fit a caravan in there. Uh, and, um, you know, so that, that goes to a particular sort of lifestyle choice that goes with beachside living in, in Perth, I guess. But One of the problems of that greyfield development you mentioned, Peter, is that a lot of planning policies, Jess, are geared about neighbourhood character, and that is a real dampener on the new and 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 the changeover of housing. And maybe some planners are uncomfortable about administering those policies. But maybe we'll come back to that. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the greyfield question is is the really big hard nut to crack in Australian urban planning. So. Um, one of the and, and there's a set of problems. One is the what we might call the the NIMBY syndrome, not in my backyard syndrome. So I live theoretically in uh, a nice leafy suburb in a street with a series of single family homes with gardens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't want that to change, and that's understandable. There's lots of benefits to that sort of um, development, existing development. There's trees, there's gardens, etc. And what, what tends to happen is we get a build, uh, knockdown rebuild. So someone moves in, they don't want this old house, they knock it down and then they build what is pejoratively called a McMansion, so built to the edges. So you've got the, you know, the surround sound theatre room inside the house and the butler's pantry and everything else, but built to the boundaries. There's no longer any green, greenery, there's no longer any um, natural drainage into the soil, et cetera, et cetera, no runoff. That's one example of what happens. The other thing that happens is you get a knockdown rebuild where that one existing family residence is replaced by, say, two or three townhouses. So you get an increase in density, you get a bit more diversity in the housing choice in the suburb, but often it's done by small developers uh, who are only concerned about that site and not about the repercussions for the rest of the area. So what does it mean for increased traffic? What does it mean, again, for the loss of greenery? all the benefits of of a traditional Australian suburb. Uh, And so, okay, so ideally what you'd have is precinct scale regeneration. We'd say, well, this precinct is due for renewal. Let's do a really smart mid-rise, medium-density development that preserves open space, that's designed for heat and cold, so minimises the use of air conditioning and creates energy efficiency, has... uh, um, you know, well-designed parking that's hidden away rather than, you know, garages fronting the street, that sort of thing. But to do that, you need to amalgamate blocks of land. And that's very hard to do when you've got several different owners because a developer is not going to have the resources to buy the blocks up one by one and put them back together um, ex- unless they can do really intense development 
which is, you know, high-rise, which is exactly what the neighbours do most don't want. Yeah. So there's a, I think it's a really big challenge and very hard to know how you break through that, that challenge. And it's becoming increasingly a political issue. I mean, you just look at the maximum mandatory building heights that have been discussed. We've discussed garden area. There's been a whole range of things that have become well, so Well, these political. controls are blanket controls and they... Uh, just make it impossible to yeah. do that. Yeah, and they benefit one particular area. They don't, or one or two particular areas. Yeah. They don't benefit. So, at the most recent Victorian election, the, the the coalition, which lost the election, promised to basically lock down suburbs in their existing form, um, while rolling out new greenfield suburbs and re um, taking away height limits on the inner city. So, you know, that would perpetuate that would have perpetuated the the model of development we have, which is the inner city going up. And this is this is particularly true of Melbourne more than other cities, but similar patterns in other cities. The inner city going up and up and up, the outer suburbs going out and out and out, and the middle ring kind of either unchanging or having these piecemeal changes where the traditional family home with garden is replaced by two or three townhouses or um, a house built to the edges, which is not ideal. And, and I think there's a real tension here between allowing designers and builders to be creative and actually setting requirements that we need to build for a climate change future, we need to build, we need to reduce the carbon impact of our, our housing, and we need to create greater housing diversity for an ageing population. Maybe we need a Grand Designs apartment TV program mm. rather than Grand Design houses. Look, I think there are designs are out there. The mm. designs are there. If you look at, I mean, I write about a development called Nutsford near Fremantle in WA, Beautiful, beautiful award-winning development, really clever design. You know, the, the cars are all tucked away inside the development so that, there's, so that the, the, the units and then, you know, townhouses and apartments, they face each other, they face the street. It encourages social interaction. They're well-designed for, for the climate. Uh, but that was done on a block of old council land, so it was a brownfield development, not a greyfield development. Mm, yeah. Um, and... and you know, so it's possible. I think we yeah. know what good design looks like. I think the problem is more a policy one of how do you create the conditions in which that'll happen without pricing it out of, um, out of you know, affordability. You speak about a particular uncertainty around high-rise apartment living. Well, what's that uncertainty? Can you... Okay, well, I think there's a few, and I, and I should preface this by saying I own, or my wife and I own a high-rise apartment in the inner city of Melbourne, um, and it's only when when you, and I don't, not not saying I regret the decision, but it's when you move in and live in the in the centre of the city that you start to think about some of the things maybe you hadn't considered. So the first one would be energy efficiency. High rise living, uh, you know, is very um, service dependent, very dependent on air conditioning, very dependent on lifts. In the event that we had energy uncertainty, for example. Um, blackouts or, or whatever for whatever reason in the case of a natural disaster or, or what it might, whatever it might be, those central city apartment complexes require a lot of servicing. They will have to be prioritised prioritized in order to get people in and out if need be and those sorts of things. You know, that, that's, that's one thing. And, and I think, you know, we, we are behind the rest of the world on, based on my research on things like building for, uh, building high-rise apartments for energy efficiency ventilation, uh, noise control between apartments and those sorts of things. I live in a very good one. The noise control is not a problem. Um, the other uncertainty is what happens to these buildings at the end of their life? 
Um, so as I understand it, we don't really know how to demolish very big buildings in the heart of the city. Sure, we, we've done the demolitions of the old housing estates, the ones in Glasgow. We've seen the way you can implode high buildings. But I'm talking about really high buildings. I'm talking about really high buildings closely packed in next to one another. As I understand it, we don't know how to demolish them. So how long are these buildings going to last? It's fine if they last in perpetuity, but will they? How well built are they? We've seen you know, a set of issues around the construction, whether it's concrete cancer or flammable cladding. So, you know, I think there's some uncertainties there. And the final uncertainty is the business model for this type of housing. So a lot of what's been built in Melbourne is predicated on foreign investors buying it, either as an investment hedge or as a place for their children to live in while they study here. What happens if our student market declines and those, uh, those students who are living in the inner city of Melbourne uh, are no longer coming in the same numbers that they have been, which is a feasible, it's an imaginable scenario. If the Australian dollar goes very high, for example, study here becomes very expensive. If for whatever reason the Chinese government puts restrictions on or if, if there are better options, China develops its own universities to such a degree that people decide, well, it's better to stay in China or, or, or you know, China has an economic crisis that limits the funds... We can, you know, so there is, th these kind of high-rise buildings are not easily adaptable to mm. affordable housing. Yeah, and they're not very easily retrofitted either. That's right, because <laughs> they have high-body corporate expenses yeah. and, and so on. And also with the boom in construction, a lot of shoddy develop building has gone on and that is going to become uncovered as the years go on. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, we, we, you know, some of the quality of what was built, and I think there was a lack, particularly in Melbourne, of um, design guidelines. So, again, we have this tension between allowing developers to build at scale and build uh, at affordable prices and making sure that we don't end up with a shoddy product where there's, you know, so-called snorkel windows or a lack of ventilation or... Poorly, poor sound sound insulation between. Well, Peter, there's a lot of substitution of inferior uh, building products mm -hmm. in a number of buildings, right. and uh, and there's a whole problem with the supply chain, which is all going to come on. Un... What do you do when you've got leaky pipes in those buildings? So, just moving on, there's been a lot of media within the planning industry over recent years about how we plan for the ageing population, the baby boomers, who will require a, appropriate housing. Now, your book talks through the options around encouraging those retire of retiree age to downsize. How do we do it? And is our housing stock up to this changeover? Yeah. So I think there's a real dilemma here between the fact that we're ageing and living in um, smaller households, so one- and two-person households, and the fact that our housing stock is geared towards families predominantly. And so we are seeing a lot more apartments built, um, but again, there are apartments that have been built largely for an investor market rather than for the needs of a changing and ageing population. And also, uh, I think the biggest issue here is the tax settings. There is absolutely no incentive to downsize. If you downsize, um, you, you essentially uh, have to pay stamp duty on a new property and that is money that most people will see as, as down the drain. I'm, not, I'm never going to get that back. I'm just... The cost of... The transactional costs of downsizing are quite large. There's also the fact that, as, uh, that the, the value of my home in no way affects my pension entitlements. 
So I can live in a very expensive home and my pension entitlements are not affected by that. If I sell that home and then put that money, that, you know, downsize and, and say get, um, you know, $500,000 of equity and put it in my bank account, all of a sudden that does affect my pension entitlements. So there's, not again, not an incentive to do that. So I think the biggest... Uh, you know, there's, there's a problem of, and where do I move to because there's not the sort of housing I want. So we're not going to get the housing we want until people move, and people won't move until they've got their appropriate housing to move into. So there's a kind of chicken and egg problem here. But I think we really have to look at the tax settings, the tax arrangements, which have encouraged us, you know, the family home is tax protected in every sense. The only tax, if you call it that, we pay on it is our council rates or stamp duty. And once you've paid stamp duty, it's over. You don't pay it again until you move. So that and if if we if we pass on our houses to our children, they inherit them without paying any wealth tax or inheritance tax. So we're encouraged by the system to invest in our primary residence, in the family home. And so we overinvest. We buy bigger houses than we need. We um, we hold on to those bigger houses. And we borrow more money than maybe is sensible. So Australia has one of the highest household debt levels in the world, and that household debt is very much related to our housing purchases. So I think to change the tax arrangements, and it's very difficult to do, but to change the tax arrangements to make to give us less incentive to invest in housing would be, you know, an ideal way to go forward. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. Let's just talk about Richard Eccleston from Ahuri. Um, he proposed a transition from stamp duty to land tax. What are the pros and cons of this and who else is doing it? Who's yes, leading okay. the way? So the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, is leading the way. The ACT, it's easier there, of course, because the state government is also the local government. So they're essentially transitioning from a stamp duty regime to uh, a system of um, property taxes, rather than purely land taxes, property taxes, but... Uh, which will which will come on top of rates. So basically what's happening is that people's rates are going up dramatically in the ACT and stamp duty rates are coming down and they will eventually be phased out. And it has to happen slowly for obvious reasons. Firstly, I've already paid my stamp duty when I bought my house and now you want to, me to pay property tax, that amounts to double taxation, so I'm going to resist it. But it's, it's something that you can hopefully sell to the public on the basis, yes... You know, but it's going to come in very slowly. You won't pay very much. And then when you do decide you want to downsize or upsize or whatever, you won't pay stamp duty. So you're not going to be hit again. Plus, for first-home buyers, it's a, it's a great thing because at the moment, first-time buyers have to borrow the money for their um, house and calculate the stamp duty stamp as well. Stamp duty is a huge impost. It's a, it's a, yeah, it actually increases dramatically the amount you have to borrow. So rather than that, you would say oh, well, I'll be able to pay that year on year. And some people have said to me, well, that's just going to be factored into the price, so it's still going to push prices up. I don't think so, because 
you, you, you will only borrow to the amount that you know that you can repay. So just as you, in, a, in, in, a, in Melbourne, you get a section 32 if you buy a house, it tells you what your outgoings will be in terms of rates or what it corporates, you would have the same thing. So this will be your, your ongoing um, uh, property annual tax, tax. Annual yeah. property tax. So yeah. you would have to bring, take that into account. So again, the ACT can do it more easily. It's a labour town. Right? I mean, it's consistently the ACT has returned a legislative assembly dominated by the Labor Party. Um, and, and so they have the political capital to take the risk and say, we're going to do this. And I think the thing to watch in the ACT will be to say, can, can, can Canberra, can the ACT show the payoffs? Look, we've done this and look what it's enabled us to do. It's enabled us to make housing more affordable or more affordable for first home buyers, which is what we're most concerned about. It's enabled us to generate the revenue to invest in more public housing, and the ACT already has one of the highest levels of public housing or social housing of any state or territory. But, you know, we, it's enabled us to, to address homelessness. So I'm hoping that the ACT government will be able to demonstrate the benefits. But it's a long transition, and in the meantime, people's rates go up and no-one wants... No one likes it when their rates are suddenly much more than they were the year before. We need more laboratories, don't we? We're trying out different things. I mean, that's one of the great things about America is there's 50 states and there's always different things being tried at different levels there. Hmm. Um, uh, again, there's a tension, though, here between trying things out and having a comprehensive national strategy. And I think, truly, if we really want to get rid of stamp duty, we have to do it in every state and territory. Otherwise... I get offered, you know, we get rid of it in Victoria and I get offered a job in Sydney where my skills will be better used and I'll be more productive. And I think, oh, but if I go to Sydney, I have to pay stamp duty. I'm going to be resistant. So we need a national system. Uh, and coming back to Richard Eccleston's work for Ahuri, uh, Richard Eccleston's a political scientist at the University of Tasmania, he's done some, and I'd recommend your listeners to, to take a look at it, some very detailed thinking about how you would do this transition gradually over time. Uh, and what the benefits of it would be. And there are, there are payoffs in terms of productivity, there are payoffs in terms of certainty for states and territories uh, of revenue because stamp duties are very unreliable. You know, boom and bust, it goes up and down. It's a very unreliable source of state revenue. Whereas if it was a broad-based property tax, it would be much, they could plan much more, it would be much more predictable. How many years has it been in, in the ACT? Uh, it was brought in, um, uh, I think, at the... 2012 election, okay. and then they won in, again in 2016, so they weathered uh, the, the, the potential backlash against that. And it, interestingly, when, when they promised to bring it in, the opposition's um, campaign against it was Labor wants to triple your, your rates, and in fact rates have doubled, at least for some people. So in some ways it was, you know, it was accurate, and they're still going up. So there, you know, it is a politically difficult thing to do, and that's why it needs a you know, it needs leadership from the federal government in terms of a coordinated national housing strategy. And it, and it also needs the federal government to bankroll things like what happens to pensioners. You know, as a pensioner, I might have a valuable home that attracts a high rate of, stamp, uh, of property tax and I limited income to pay it. Well, then it can be a lien against the estate so that it's paid out when you sell the house or when you die. And, you know, so, so you don't actually have to pay it up front. It's deferred. Yeah, it's deferred. Um, Peter, you, you, can you talk to this idea of ingrained transfer of wealth amongst families? And what happens to those people who don't inherit property? 
Yeah, look, it's really interesting, isn't it? We, if, if we look at the, the sort of post-war period in the Menzies era, which is when we, we skyrocketed from about 50% home ownership to about, you know, the peak of around 72%, within 20 years, and also within a period in which we had a massive baby boom and mass immigration. So quite a remarkable achievement. And, and, the, and this is why the great Australian dream is so powerful, I think, because there was a period in our history where everyone could realistically aspire to buy their own home. And this was ideologically encouraged to counter communism. It was the idea that, you know, people owned their own homes, they'd be good, upstanding citizens, they wouldn't be attracted to dangerous left-wing ideology and so on. Uh, and it worked for a time. But in my view, it's also sowed the seeds of its own uh, kind of problem by, by privileging home ownership and the uh, home ownership and then and then combining it with things like um, uh, capital gains tax discount, negative gearing that encouraged further investment in property. What we did was create a kind of rapidly escalating prices, property prices that then, meant this great Australian dream was, was priced out of reach. So what I think is happening, and, and John Alexander, the member for Benelong, who's been very outspoken on housing um, within the coalition side of politics, what he sees happening is a bifurcation of Australian society into homeowners who are able to build up wealth in the form of, of real estate, their own homes or real estate investments, mm. and renters who will never be able to do that. And the homeowners will pass on that wealth to their children uh, and so and the renters, yep. it's it, it's it's mm. it's replicating. Mm. Um, well, it's it's entrenching privilege and a disadvantage in bricks and mortar, and I think it's you know as someone who who is an egalitarian in 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 principle, you know, who believes that society with lower levels of inequality is a just, more just society, and also probably a more democratic society. Where, where more people get a say, it worries me that, that we're going in this direction. So what, hap what happens if you do rent your whole life? You, you talk about your friend Caroline in the book. Mm. Um, how do they fund retirement with no yeah. significant so asset? Caroline and I began, you know, we, we, when I first moved to Melbourne in, late, in the late 80s, we shared a house and we've remained friends ever since. And I've gone on to have all the benefits of home ownership, which mm. are tax protected and tax encouraged, and she ha has not. Um, so she's... As, as a single mother, as a now um, woman in her mid-50s mid with a part-time job, she's insecure. She, I mean, Victoria's tenancy rules have just been reformed and that's a good thing. She can hopefully have a bit more security now than in the past, not being kicked out of a house for no, no, with no grounds. But, um, you know, she's in housing stress, as in, you know, her rent eats up well more than 30% of her income. Uh, and yet she earns the minimum wage. So someone on the minimum wage, in my view, should be able to afford decent housing without it, without it being a stressful situation. In Melbourne, you can't do that. Uh, and the, the issue for her, I mean, she leads a fine life, but, but her concern is for the future when she no longer, if she gets sick, if she has to leave work, if she retires, what options does she have? Um, now, our pension rates in Australia are predicated on an assumption that older people own their own home and therefore have minimal housing costs. But increasingly, we're seeing, you know, more. We're seeing home as we see home ownership rates decline, and that declining rate of home ownership move up the generational change, 
chain, we'll see more and more people retiring or continuing in um, part-time or casual jobs without a home of their own. And so the corollary of that is that on top of your pension, you're going to get Commonwealth rent assistance. Commonwealth rent assistance has gone up from $2.2 billion in outlays a few years ago to $4.4 billion now, and it's likely to keep going up, and yet it's nowhere near enough. Um, at least not if you're... It might be enough if you're living in Adelaide, or, but it's not enough if you're living in Sydney or Melbourne to really supplement the rent in a meaningful way. So, you know... If we continue down this path, we're going to have a much higher level of social expenditure to support people, or we're going to have a lot more people living in poverty and in housing stress. So it's it's a it, you know it's a it's a worrying future. Peter, Peter, in Australia, there's always a temptation to compare ourselves with Europe. Normally, inferior. Mm. We always got this inferiority complex. Mm. What have you seen in the European housing context work well, and and what do you think we can learn from? Yeah, so this isn't in the book, but it's in a piece I wrote subsequently for Inside Story, um, and it was uh, it's about Finland. And uh, Finland is not that different from Australia. It has about 70% home ownership rate, similar to Australia, 65%, 70%. So it's not a renter society like Germany, for example. One of the comparisons I use in the book is Germany, where about half of people rent lifelong, and and that's seen as normal. But in, in Finland, they have also eradicated rough sleeping. And they've, interestingly, they've, they've done it through what's called the housing first model. So they they transformed all of their shelters and emergency accommodation, said, what's the point of that? Because people end up in these temporary accommodation and end up there for years. Let's make them permanent right from the start. So when someone gets crisis accommodation, it is ongoing, uh, ongoing secure permanent home. And yes, uh, you know, in Australia, the traditional approach has been the um, staircase model to housing. So you come in and you've got a, a set of issues. You maybe, you know, have a mental health issue or substance abuse issue. So let's deal with that so that you are then able to ha- hold down a tenancy of your own. So first we're going to equip you to hold down the tenancy. But in fact, it's very hard to address those problems until you have secure housing. So this... Finland tips it on the model on its head and said, let's get the secure housing first. We'll provide then the wraparound services to help you uh, deal with whatever problems. And even if you don't deal with them, well, you're going to be better off because it's securely housed, even if you continue to have mental health problems or continue to have addiction problems. Now, the big difference between Finland and Australia is that Finland has 13% public housing. Finland has a requirement that 20% of new developments, or at least I think this is the case in Helsinki at least, 20% of new housing developments are affordable. It has a comprehensive national strategy. Homelessness is not seen as an isolated problem you deal with separately. Homelessness is seen as part of a integ- an overall problem of providing housing for all. Uh, and so, you know, there's a recognition that you're not going to deal with ho- homelessness unless you provide sufficient social or affordable housing throughout the system. But Finland is different to Australia. Local governments own a lot of land. They have much greater control over planning decisions. Um, so they can mandate things like um, inclusionary zoning. You know, there's a certain proportion of apartments have to be affordable. Uh, Finland does a much better job of mixing affordable uh, and other housing together rather than putting, keeping the two separate so you can see the difference. Oh, that's the social housing over there and that's the private housing over here. 
So I think there's a lot we can learn from, from Finland. There's a lot we can learn from the UK, from the development of the community housing sector in the UK. Uh, there's a lot we can learn from Germany about the incentives for property investment. So in Germany, they have negative gearing. In Germany, they have a capital gains tax discount. The big difference is you don't get that capital gains tax discount unless you've held the property for 10 years. Oh. So if I'm going to hold a property for 10 years, then I have an interest in having a secure tenant to pay rent for that 10 years. So my interests as a landlord and the tenant's interests as a tenant are much more closely aligned than they are here, where my interest is to keep the tenant on an uncertain footing, because at any point, I might want to sell that property and realise my capital gain and the discount that goes with it. So um, what should our priority areas be in Australia, do you think, on that point? Should it be, because I think at, at the moment, our system is really set up to only cater for the very bottom end of the spectrum and the very upper end of the spectrum. How, what are our priorities in terms of fixing that middle? Yeah, and look, and the bottom end of the spectrum is, you know, essentially public housing, social housing, and that's essentially rationed yeah. um, because there's not enough of it. So once you're in it, as an incumbent, you're going to hang on to it. Exactly. Um, and arguably some of the most needy might be kept out because yeah. some less needy are in there. I'm not That's saying they're it. not needy, but, you know, actually a pensioner is better off than someone on Newstart financially. Pensions are much, you know, it's, it's linked to, to wages and so on, whereas Newstart, is, as we know, is stagnated. So my priorities would be, first of all, the immediate kind of um, band-aid that I think we need is an increase in Commonwealth rent assistance. So that would enable people on Newstart or people on um, disability pension or whatever to live a more comfortable life, to be less in rental stress. They may choose to use that money to rent somewhere better than they're living in or they may just be glad to have some extra money that they can buy better food with or do some things they want to do with. So increase Commonwealth rent assistance. But I don't see it as the long-term answer. Uh, I think the next thing is better tenancy laws to protect tenants improve tenants' rights, removal of the no reason, no grounds evictions or ending of leases, and a changing of the mindset because we talk about mum and dad investors and mum and dad landlords as if this is kind of some pastime you do on the weekend and you're you know, doing someone a favour by letting them live in your house. This is a, ser a service like any other and should be held to certain standards. And if you're not in the business of providing decent housing in return for the rent you get, if you can't afford that, well, get out. Don't do it. Don't invest in that because it comes with responsibilities. Um, then the, the longer term, well, the next level I would say is increase our spending on, on social housing. So more investment from the states, and this has to be linked to, you know, a coordinated national strategy with a minister for housing in Canberra who works with the states. Um, to increase overall investment. Things like forgiving Tasmania, its historic housing loans to the Commonwealth. At the moment, most of the money Tasmania gets from the Commonwealth goes to paying back the interest on previous loans from the Commonwealth. That's pointless. So, you know, let's get serious. Uh, Tasmania has a real crisis of affordable accommodation. You know, the, the Commonwealth needs to work with the states, not see them as antagonists. Um, and in the longer term, we have to work out how we pay for that, right? 
you don't, social housing isn't cheap. We're talking billions and billions of dollars of necessary investment. And, and social housing or social and affordable housing are infrastructure. This is not welfare, this is infrastructure. This is what makes a productive, cohesive society. If people aren't well housed, our society will not be a good society. So see it as an infrastructure investment. Where does the money come from? Well, you know, we could increase income taxes. No one has an appetite for that. We could increase the GST. That penalises people on low incomes because they spend more of their income on, on necessities. Or we could say, where is the money? Where is the wealth accumulated in Australia? It's in housing. It's in people like me who bought my first house for $137,500. That house I bought, I don't own it anymore, but if I did, that's now worth $2 million. A 600% increase in value through no work of mine, just luck and circumstance. Well, I think it's fair enough that we we ask those of us who've benefited from the housing boom to give something back. Mm. Uh, and, what, and what can we as planners do to help, you know, with the housing, housing difficulties what, that, that we find ourselves in? So what can, what's your message to planners? Oh, I guess I don't <laughs> know enough about planners to, to be sure, but I think to keep banging away at that very hard nut to crack, which is how do we redevelop our middle ring suburbs? These are the suburbs that have good access to jobs. These are the suburbs that have good access or relatively good access to transport. These are the suburbs that already have infrastructure. These are the suburbs that would benefit from greater diversity of housing stock so that people who already live there but are living alone or in couples in large houses could stay in the same area, stay close to friends, stay close to familiar services, but live somewhere more appropriate. Uh, so I think, I think from a planning point of view, that middle ring is, is the really hard bit. And the other really hard bit is balancing, you know, the understandable and reasonable expectation of developers to make a profit with planning rules that also prepare us uh, for a climate-changed future, that create energy-efficient housing, and that are... Um, sensitive to the urban fabric. So if we're looking at the inner cities that don't create wind tunnel, wind tunnels and overshadowing everywhere, that don't present a blank face to the street but have some kind of engaging interaction with pedestrian life. You know, those, those are the, I would see as the big, um, the big planning challenges. Mm, definitely. What advice would you give to Gen X and Ys now? <laughs> well... <laughs> I guess it depends. Do you have parents who own their own homes and are going to be able to help you buy your own home? or The mum and dad bank. Do you have, yeah, the, the parental bank to draw on, the family bank to draw on, um, grandma's inheritance to look forward to? Uh, do you have a professional career and a high income? Or are you um, someone who, you know, rents and whose parent parents rent um, who has to think differently? I would say get politically active. You know, I mean, obviously you're going to make decisions in your own interest, your own long-term interest about whether you buy or rent, but um, get politically active and demand a fairer distribution of resources between the wealthy baby boomers and the current generation, and not just intergenerationally, but across different segments of society, so that, you know, see housing, activate for housing, not as welfare, but housing as a form of fundamental social and economic infrastructure that will lead to a better future for everyone. 
And, and Peter, recommendations? What have you been reading or listening to now that uh, has you know, picked your interest? Well, the book I'm reading at the moment is Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu. And if people aren't familiar with that, Bruce Pascoe is an Indigenous uh, writer in, in Australia. And he's looked... You know, we have this idea that uh, Aboriginal cultures were, um, and when, were uh, hunter-gatherer societies. That is, they moved through the land and, you know, killed the odd emu or kangaroo and harvested the... Um, Drop the, the nomad. Yeah, the, the, the harvested the fruit that was available. Bruce Pascoe's book is arguing that actually there was a very sophisticated system of agriculture and aquaculture. So people may know about the Eildon, um, Lake Eildon's eel traps, and, but this existed throughout um, different parts of Australia where fish farming or... or methods of harvesting fish and developing fish, of, of growing uh, grasses for grain or, or rices in the, in the wetlands. It's a very interesting book, very persuasive, drawing on the observations of early settlers and early explorers uh, because a lot of the evidence has been destroyed, but also archaeologists. Was that the open landscape that a lot of Westerners found, that the Aborigines managed the landscape so that the grasses grew, the trees yeah. were thinned out. So things like fire stick burning and that mm. sort of stuff. But he's adding a lot more depth to that debate. And, of course, yes, the sheep came, loved the grasses and ate them all. But he, he, he recounts early settlers describing how, how uh, Aboriginal people had harvested this, these grasses and stacked the grasses. You know, they, it wasn't just foraging in the forest. It was a sophisticated system of land management uh, it's a really interesting book. Along with that, I've been reading some accounts of early frontier violence. So there's a guy called Carl Feilberg, who was a journalist. Um, he began as a station hand, became a journalist in Queensland in the 1880s, I think, um, who wrote a series of articles in the Queenslander um, uh, called How We Civilise, about the use of the Queensland Native Police and, and what was going on there. And, and you can find the book in the National Library of Australia. It's online. You can look it up. Uh, it's a profoundly disturbing read, but it reminds us that there's a whole section of our history that we forget about, that things like um, frontier violence were very much debated at the time. People were very aware of it at the time, and we've kind of written it out of history. Um, similarly with the stolen generation, the idea that, you know, the people then thought they were doing the right thing. No, this was a very controversial policy at the, uh, at the time and you, you read con contemporaneous accounts about... I just read one by a police officer in WA describing what he had to do to take a child away and agonising, knowing he was doing the wrong thing, knowing he knew it was wrong, but these were the instructions at the time. So I think, you know, if you look up Carl Feilberg or, or another book um, by the Reverend John Gribble called Dark Deeds in a Sunny Land about the northwest of WA, these, are, these resources are available online. The, the, the book I'm about to, to read is, is the reissuing of Henry Reynolds' The Whispering in Our Hearts, which by historian Henry Reynolds, which brings together that history of frontier violence and the resistance. Right. He was the really, with Facebook, was the really one of the first ones to talk about it in the open. And Jess, what's caught your interest in the last, uh, since our last interview? Well, I'm about to start Blue Lake by David Sornig, who's actually going to be our next uh, podcast guest later on this week. Um, but other than that, I haven't been doing a lot of reading lately. I've been doing a lot of quilting. Quilting, um, quilting little baby rugs for different friends and family, so. Well, that's good, Jess. Yeah. But, uh, 
All right. Well, um, my tip to listeners is uh, I've started meditation and I recommend it to busy people or not so busy people as a way of uh, just taking the stress out of their lives. So... You do seem uh, surprisingly zen today, Pete. <laughs> thank you, Jess. And thank you very much, Peter, for this wonderful podcast interview. Thanks, Peter, and thank you, Jess. Thank you.